The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. But turn in your copy of God's Word now to Philippians 4, 10 through 13. This is our second to last message in this months-long series through the book of Philippians. Again, that's Philippians 4, 10 through 13. And maybe you're new to the faith and uh, are just uh, kind of unsure about your Bible and you don't know where Philippians is. Let me just give you a little roadmap. It's about three quarters of the way back. Um, it's a small one. It's only a few pages, so you can easily uh, go buy it. Uh, but there is also an index there at the front of your Bible, so you can find your, your page uh, there. But we preach here at Redemption verse by verse, expositionally through uh, books and verses uh, of the Bible uh, in sequential order. And so um, it's just helpful to know where things are. If, you, if you're unsure, let me just offer this to you this morning. Maybe you're unsure about where things are at in your Bible. Don't get discouraged this morning. Keep after it, keep looking, keep going, and pretty soon it will be familiar to you. Once It was once unfamiliar to me as it was to everybody in this room, but just keep going, just keep uh, looking, and it'll, it'll become familiar. It's kind of like the first time you drove around New Braunfels. You probably got lost. You probably found yourself downtown and spinning around in that, uh, you know, the, the turn, the, the, they call it the, the square or whatever, but it's actually like more of an oval. And you didn't know when to get off and what to do, and you just kind of drove around for a while. But eventually you find your way uh, around this city that we love, right? Well, hopefully you found Philippians uh, chapter 4. Let me read it for us now as we begin. Uh, I want to read the verses that will be the focus of our attention today. Philippians 4, 10 through 13 say this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word for God's people. Church, as we've been walking through Philippians, you've uh, probably picked up on the fact that we've been talking about a lot of traits, gospel-worthy traits that uh, define uh, really believers in a specific way, but uh, that are true of all of humanity. And this morning, we will look at contentment, a durable contentment as believers, for contentment is uh, uh, something that every human being desires. The self-help industry uh, understands this and has capitalized upon it. New books hit the shelves constantly, claiming to have the secrets to life, you know, to secrets to succeeding at all that you do. New diets promise quick results and workout plans boast of superior results and burning fat and building muscle. Financial gurus, they guarantee uh, returns and luxurious retirement if you just invest with them and uh, follow their plans for wealth. And so whether it's knowledge or strength or money that we're after, on the surface there, at the heart underneath it, something else is going on. See, we're seeking satisfaction. We're seeking uh, contentment. For we know that we lack understanding, we lack strength, we lack fitness, we lack money, and so we think we need more and more and better and better and better. We think that then when we find it, when we actually achieve it, then we can actually settle down. 
We can finally then be content. We can have some stability through life's ups and downs. And this theme this morning really gets at the heart again of this series that we've called Durable, this theme here of Durable that has carried us all the way through the book of Philippians. See, the significance of these biblical truths that we've learned in these golf. I can see how uh, the Lord is galvanizing your faith. Come what may, next crisis, next headline, it doesn't matter. God has been stabilizing you by His Spirit through His Word as you press into Jesus Christ. So that whether things are crashing down or even things are surging upward, this one thing remains true of us, a true of gospel people, that we are content in Christ. Content in Christ. This is the central truth, really, of the verses that I just read for us here. It's that gospel people are content in Christ. Gospel people are content in Christ. Write that down. Memorize that. Put it here before us. Chew on it uh, not only this morning, but also this week. When I say gospel people, if you're new with us, this has been our theme of those who genuinely follow Christ. Christians. Those that uh, love Christ and worship, walk, and work for Him. Gospel people are, are these, this phrase that uh, we've coined from back in chapter 1, verse 27. Only live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today, gospel people are what? We are content in Christ. Content in Christ. Now, contentment walks hand in hand with joy. Have you ever thought about what it means to be content? It walks hand in hand with joy. When we are content or satisfied in Christ, we don't have to chase after the next thing. We don't have to uh, climb up the, uh, the quote-unquote, the next rung on the ladder. We don't have to always be content. He says, as Paul says, he's learned in whatever situation to be content. It literally means to be self-sufficient, to be not lacking in anything. One person defined contentment like this. It's a calm acceptance of life's pressures. I kind of like that. It's good, isn't it? A calm acceptance of life's pressures. Now, the word itself has stoic roots. Are you familiar with the ancient philosophy of stoicism? The, of sto the Stoics, of, uh, really, you see traces of it today, but they saw it as a virtue to have no uh, emotional or physical response to the ups and downs of life. They were steady and uh, stable and unaffected. They showed no facial expressions, either a smile or, or even frowns or crazy faces or anything else. They had no vocal changes, no change in volume or tone. They were just steady and unaffected. They sought to just be uh, stable and unmoving. Now, for one, as we just analyze the, 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 the philosophy here, for one, that just sounds like a boring life, right? I mean, to have no passion, to have no, like, to feel nothing, to be unaffected and not to have joy in life and sorrow through hard things, like, it just sounds boring. But two, it's not the biblical life. For God has created us with emotions. God has created us to be responsive, now, the thing is, uh, uh, contentment for the Christian is not like the Stoic version of contentment for uh, how was it defined? See, self-sufficiency or to be unaffected isn't what we are after. That's actually, self-sufficiency is actually the problem. See, we, we are all bent right from birth to, to be independently minded. Nobody has to teach a young child to, to say, I can do it myself. 
we're just ingrained in us. We want to do it our way. Uh, we want it my way or the highway. We uh, think that we're the smartest in the room, the most beautiful in the room, the strongest, the most capable, whatever it is. We want to do things ourselves. And so for gospel people, for Christians, when we say we're content in Christ, we are not meaning self-sufficient, but Christ-sufficient. We are sufficient in Christ. That's what we're after. We are content in Christ. We are ever growing more satisfied in knowing Christ. This again has the echoes of the theme that Paul said in chapter 3, verse 13, when he says this one thing he was after, the knowing Christ forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, and pressing on toward the goal of uh, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, the longer we walk with Christ, the more sweeter the relationship gets. It never dulls in its, uh, in its joy. It never loses its attraction. But as we grow in knowing Christ, it gets sweeter. The gospel, the good news that saves us, gets more awesome. We are not in ourselves holy. And there was nothing that we could do to get out of the predicament that we found ourselves in our sin. God himself knew that. And so he sent Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to come and live a human life, living the perfect life and dying a substitutionary death on the cross so that we might be saved. And when we repent of our sin, turning from that and believe in Jesus Christ as our atonement, as our Savior, following Him as our Master, then we are saved and freed to walk in newness of life. And see, even that truth, the good news of Jesus, becomes sweeter as we age, does it not, church? It becomes more and more glorious the more we understand, the more we begin to savor it, and therefore we can be content in Christ. And so let's just ask the question, what's the secret then that he is referring to here? He said he's learned something. How are we then content in Christ? Well, let's look at the verses a little bit closely. And we have uh, three points here that will uh, lead us through the passage. Christ keeps us content through, first here, his uncommon community. Through his uncommon community. This is a phrase here, uncommon community, that we use often around redemption as we seek out to live out the biblical one another's. If you were just in step two, uh, our membership class in the first hour here, you might have heard even this phrase. If not, let's make sure it's in there. They heard it. Okay, good. But it's that phrase that we use that describes the New Testament life that other to pray for one another, to confess our sin to one another. This is an uncommon community that we are as the body of Christ. And it's a phrase really that describes what Paul is getting at in verse 10 here. This mutual concern or a mutual ministry that exists among gospel people. And so when he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me, for you were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. He's, he's talking about the mutual ministry that exists among Paul, who is in prison, and the church there in Philippi that uh, had heard about his needs. Now, they were a long ways apart. Paul in Rome and uh, Philippi is in uh, present-day Greece, and so uh, a long ways away. And when they heard about his needs, they sent Epaphroditus, the guy we learned about in chapter 2. They sent him with financial help and also encouragement on behalf. He was a representative of this body of believers to go on their behalf to minister to him. 
even though a year or even years had gone by since Paul was with them, since he formed and planted that church there in that city, a long time had gone by. They had even lost touch, likely. Now they hear that he's in prison and they jump at the need, the opportunity. It'd be in the same way. Think of it, a childhood pastor, a pastor that you had affection for in, in a church that you were part of previous to redemption. And if you heard they were in prison for their faith, for preaching the gospel, you would hopefully be moved to compassion to go and minister to them and take care of them. And so this is why Paul says he rejoices in the Lord greatly. Imagine his surprise. You know, he didn't get a text warning. He didn't get a phone call. He didn't have any news. And then all of a sudden, Epaphroditus shows up on behalf of the church there in the body of believers. Imagine the encouragement. Imagine the joy after being chained there. And so it's right for him to give thanks to God, even though time had gone by. And it says that they revived their concern for him. I love the picture here. This, it's a horticultural term, this idea of revived. Even in our day now, in the season in which we find ourselves, it's springtime. And so what's happening to the plants and the trees in your yard right now? At least the ones that have uh, survived the winter weather, right? And I had to cut down my lemon tree and several bushes and different things because it just didn't make it. I know that our lemon tree. <laughs> Loved our lemon tree. Sorry, no more lemon juice or lemon for y'all either. <laughs> but imagine if it were to revive again. I left a little, uh, little stick to hopefully. I mean, I think it's all gone, but I've left a little bit. But here, even though uh, things had gone uh, lying dormant, now it is revived. Their concern was revived for him after he left Philippi. And so after he had left, they had apparently no opportunities. I love this word here. They had no opportunities to serve him or to care for him until now. And so they make the most of it. And this is the way gospel people view an uncommon community and the needs that exist within, within the body. See, our service to one another isn't just an obligation, but it is rather an opportunity. It's uh, we get to care for one another. We get to love one another. It's not uh, something that, you know, we just have to do, so we'll grin and bear it. But rather, we get to celebrate marriage and births and spiritual growth and all the high points of life. We get to grieve through, uh, through disease and sickness and even walk through the valley of the shadow of death with people. We get to help people in the midst of conflict. We get to walk with people through disagreement. We get to fellowship and financial needs. We get to help people move in, even up many flights of stairs. And we get to, as a body of believers, we get to both give and receive these things in mutual concern for one another. So as a church, we value small groups so highly for this is the proximity. This is where these uh, relationships and where this community is cultivated among us and where we are cared for, where there's some security. There's security in the mutual ministry uh, of one another's back in all of these things. See, uncommon community is one of God's primary means for our flourishing, both spiritual and physical. Not just for, for surviving, but for our flourishing in the midst of community. And so in God's infinite wisdom and in His design for human relationships, He, he created us to be content in Christ through being part of a body. Paul would tell the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12 that Christ is the head. He would teach them that Christ is the head of the body and we are in each individual members of it, all working together to be one functioning body. That's a great picture, isn't it? 
Like when you think of it, detached from the body, you are severely lacking, even, even useless. See, if you were to cut off my foot, it would just be a useless mass of, of bones and flesh there. And left to detached and unattended to, it would just begin to like decay and rot. And Well, it's kind of a gruesome picture, so we'll just leave it there. But if we were to attach it back to the body or to keep it attached here, now we're going places. Now it's functional. Now it's, it's attached to the rest of the body and useful uh, in the greater context of all of this body. And so as gospel people, as we embrace an uncommon community, this allows everyone to act. It allows everyone to rest easy. It allows everybody to remain content in Christ and not panic even when crisis hits. Even when the worst of things happen, we remain individually and collectively durable against the ups and downs of life. This is one of God's means for us to remain content in Him. And so just two points of application here. As we seek to, uh, to be content, Christ keeps us content through an uncommon community. We want to make the most of it. And here's how we do so. First is we make our needs known. We have, to, we have to make our needs known to the body of Christ. We can't help if we don't know. We can't pray if we don't know. We can't come alongside. We can't fellowship with you in this if the body doesn't know it. You might say to yourself, well, I'm a private person. No, I don't want to be a burden to anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm just a private person. What that usually means is that you're an individual. And so here, even the Apostle Paul, Christ himself showed himself weak. Showed himself needy as a human. as He needed his brothers in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him. Pray in his moment of anguish. The lies, the things that we say, oh, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want, I don't, I don't want to inconvenience anyone. Let me just say, in an uncommon community, your needs will never be a burden. They'll never be too much. It is rather an opportunity for blessing, both for you and for the body. As we come together and as we work as the, in the way that Christ has designed us to work, then we are content and satisfied. And so we must make our needs known. And then secondly, we must respond to those needs with joy and generosity. And let me just even offer a word of commendation, because as your pastor, I see you do this all the time. And we have a church full of people, ready and eager, willing uh, that so many just step up. And this last year has demonstrated that time and time and time again, hasn't it, church? See, we've responded to uh, great crises. We've rallied around those who are grieving. We've listened and, uh, to those that were processing and, and hurting through the various issues that made the news. We've stuck it out and walked with people through marriage crises. We've showed up to help people move. We've showed up to serve. We've given sacrificially, financially given, even to the church, even when things were hard and things were unknown and we didn't know and we were worried if we were losing our job. That's people stepped up. Gave, gave to the church, gave to individual, met these needs. And so uh, God has been glorified and with a body has uh, survived and flourished. And we have been content in Christ, haven't we, church? See, Christ keeps us content through this uncommon community, but he does so in a second way as well. In the next few verses here, Christ keeps us intent through his unblemished history. Through his unblemished history. See, he's careful to make sure in verse 11 to, that, that we know he's not complaining. 
He's like, I'm not complaining here. He's not complaining either of his circumstances nor their lack of help. See, look what he says in verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So what's he saying in these verses? He's saying that, hey, he's learned something in his 30 years of following Jesus. He, he has a long history of seeing God's faithfulness to him in every circumstance of his life. Every circumstance of his life. He has experienced the unblemished faithfulness of God through it all, through the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. Here's how he describes here. I'm going to read you a section from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that describes Paul where he kind of lays out here. He's not boasting. Uh, but he's, he's, well, he's boasting in, in God's faithfulness and Christ's sufficiency here. But he's saying, hey, even when I was at my lowest, guess what happens? Listen to how he says it here. This is 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23 and, and following. He says, with greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times uh, I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, all those physical things, there is also the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." All those people, all the cares. You know, I think of the, uh, the, the, the things that I feel for you for one church. And Paul has planted many in the anxiety, the weightiness, as he knows the, uh, the, the things that people are going through in the various cities. And guess what he would say uh, just a few verses later? He would go on to say that through each of these hardships, God's grace was sufficient and his faithfulness was on display. Through it all, through it all. Likewise, not only in the lowest of lows, but in the seasons of success and abundance. When he was on, the, on his A-game and things were going well, when he was eating his meals with the rich, when his coin purse hung heavy on his hip, when people were coming to Christ in droves, guess what? Through even those seasons, God's grace was sufficient and his faithfulness was on display for him. Why? For the consistent character of Christ keeps us content in Christ. So that no matter if he was in the valley or when he was on the mountaintop, there was no guessing when it came to Jesus. We don't always know the outcome of our circumstances. We don't always know which, uh, which way we are to go, which is why we don't hitch our joy. It always ends in God's glory and our good. Always, in every season, it always ends in His glory and our good. Church, believe that. Remember that. Hold tightly to it. Let it not stray far from your mind. Why? Because there is an unblemished history of God's faithfulness behind you. And so guess what is before you? A future of God's perfect faithfulness and sufficiency in everything. Believe it. Remember it. Cling to it. Keep your eyes on it. What can you expect to be the outcome of your life ahead of you as you follow Christ wholeheartedly? God's glory 
and your good. In everything. See, there's a security in the faithfulness of God. There's a contentedness that comes uh, here because our joy, just like Paul's, it, wasn't, it isn't hitched to our toys and our titles and our trophies. We learned that from chapter 3. It's not hitched to that, nor is it attached to our accomplishments or accolades, but it's hitched to the gospel. Our joy, our contentedness is hitched to the character of God, and so we can be content through all things. And this is the secret there in verse 12 that he's referring to. It's not like some, shh, don't tell anybody secret. This is a secret we tell everybody. That there is satisfaction, eternal satisfaction in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. There is no greater joy in all of our life. And if we start to forget, all we have to do is look back at the unblemished history. We see we all are tempted to forget, don't we? We're all tempted. We, we move on to something and we forget what happened, uh, you know, a year ago. We forget what happened a decade ago. We, we, we forgot what happened when we woke up this morning, right? But redemption, look around and see what God has done. The very fact that we are sitting here in this building shows that God is faithful to his promise. When Jesus promised to build his church in Matthew 16, guess what happened? Here's an example of it. We don't have to look far to look at your own salvation. See the faithfulness of God, the obedience of Christ to stand in your place and you will see his faithfulness. Not that you, you have a long history. You have a lot of examples to just look back at the details. But if you're new to Christ, you're thinking to yourself, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have much. Maybe you've just been following the Lord a few weeks, a few months. Maybe you've never been taught to see what God is doing around you. You're like, I don't have this much evidence. Well, then let me just encourage you, listen to the stories of others. Hear the faithfulness of God in their life and trust that it'll happen in your life. But for all of us, guess what we have? A whole Bible full, a lifetime of examples here. Back through a millennia of the faithfulness of God to his people and the fulfillment of his promises right here. How cool is our Old Testament in that way? through all those names that you can't pronounce and things that are happening that are just wild and crazy, that you may even have a hard time believing, like, did this actually happen? Right? I remember we just finished reading Judges, and it's like, those guys were messed up. This, is, this stuff really happened? Yeah. This just goes to show. Here, Judges, you want to know, you know just kind of overarching viewpoint of Judges here? It's, this is what happens when people uh, uh, abandon the Lord and following Him. Things just spiral out of control. Depravity only gets worse. But through it all, God is merciful to His people. He'll preserve His people. He'll be faithful to His promises. And you can rest assured in that. Old Testament's full of these things. But here's some help to you. You want to remember God's faithfulness? Here's three practices I would, I would commend to you in these days. If you have trouble remembering, which uh, if I asked you to raise your hand, if you have trouble remembering, every hand in the room should go up. We all do. It doesn't matter how old you are or how long you've been following the Lord. You want to remember God's faithfulness first here? Keep a journal. Just keep, keep a journal. So you're not like, ah, I don't want to do that. I don't write things down. Diaries, those, those are for sissies. <laughs> then I'm a sissy because I journal. 
write it down. It doesn't have to be long and elaborate. If you can't spell things, fine. But record the doings of God in your life so that you can go back and see them. Verses that stick out, whatever you want to write, prayers, things that you want to, uh, God to answer, hopes that you uh, are, are chasing after, dreams that you want to see uh, come true, things that you want God to do in your life. We're to keep a journal and look back on it often. The second way here, just write notes in your Bible. Okay, you don't want a journal? Write notes in your Bible. It's good to write in your Bible. Even if it costs $200 and it's made of goat skin or whatever else. Write notes in there. My Bible's full of, of dates and little notes of when a, a particular passage was, uh, was helpful to me or meaningful. Or God used it at a significant portion. I'll just write it in the, the little margins there so that when I read it again the next year, I'm reminded of what God taught me and what he did. There are little anchor points there that I just remember. And we'll just write a little note and then mm, my, my memories go back there. And God just has a way of providentially bringing you back to that passage when you need it most. Write little notes in your Bible. It's good to do that. It's, it's right. God, God is honored in doing that. And here's a third way. Just put some memorials around your house. Y'all are decorating your house. I've been in many of your houses, so I know you're decorating. So be purposeful in it. Do like the, the memorial stones in Joshua 4 as God's people were crossing into the promised land and they put those memorial stones so they would remember that God had carried them through the wilderness those 40 years and now was bringing them there. As, as you see, big things happen. As God is uh, answering prayers, as you want to remember things, if you want to just remember verses, then put them around your house so that they are a constant reminder. So that as you walk through, you glance and you see that sign. You see the, those, you know, that pile of rocks if you want to put that in your, in your house. But these practices, they will keep you content. They will be used of God as you are starting to drift, as your mind is starting to fear, as you're starting to get anxious, as you're starting to uh, seek approval in, in, in success, as you're starting to seek after those accolades and those achievements and those accomplishments, as you're putting your hope in toys and titles and treasures. God will use those things to bring your heart, to steady it back to Christ's sufficiency. See, God is so good. He will keep you content in his unblemished history if we would just remind ourselves of it. But there's a final way. And it may not mean what you think. But there is a final way that Christ keeps us content. He keeps us content through his unlimited strength. Through his unlimited strength there in verse 13. I can do all things. You probably have quoted this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I have a friend who once preached a sermon series called Butchering the Bible. What he did in that is he took those common verses that uh, you know, we all know that get quoted often. You might even hear like uh, celebrities quote them on TV and just all those ones. And he preached them in their context and, 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 and showed what they actually mean and how significant they, they really are. And Philippians 4.13 is one of those verses that oftentimes gets butchered, right? Athletes will tattoo this on their forearm as like motivation to win, right? Christian schools will put it in humongous letters wrapped around the, the whole uh, locker room as, uh, as, as, uh, as motivation also to win. We use it even to like psych ourselves up to, to do tasks, to do things that we don't want to do, right? Like best dads, there's like a, the baby's got a dirty diaper and we're like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's do this. Guys are like, no, no, that's not. 
We use it in other ways. We have like a meeting at work and we're like, I don't want to have this. I don't want to do. I don't want to go to my job today. I don't want to wake up. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But let me just ask a question. What's the context of the verse? What's, what's the context here that where we're, what we're after? A hermeneutical principle or studying your Bible is that uh, meaning and significance are derived from the context or the surrounding verses, the larger themes of what's happening. So what's the context of verse 13? What's the central truth? You hopefully wrote it down. Gospel people are content in Christ. And so our theme is contentment. It's contentment, which includes both the ups and downs of life. It's not just merely the victory. It's not just merely in the good times. It's not merely when it's just in bad times. So let me ask this question. Let me ask this. If everything was taken away from you today, you literally lost everything. If you were placed in jail like Paul, or you were just diagnosed with a debilitating disease with zero cure, could you still say Philippians 4.13? Likewise, on the other end of the spectrum, if suddenly you became exorbitantly wealthy, you just happened upon a, a, a wealth that was really beyond your thinking, way beyond your generational wealth. You and your family for generations were set up with enough money that you would never have to work again. Buy anything and everything that you ever wanted. More wealthy than the most wealthy of people. Even then, could you say, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, this verse is really a thermometer of the contentedness of our heart. Are we truly satisfied in Christ? And are we satisfied in Him? That's actually a better rendering of the verse. I can do all things in Christ versus through Christ who strengthens me. See, as gospel people, we are in Christ. Which means we, and we can't be taken out of Christ. We are found in Him, covered by Him, saved by Him. We, we are in Him. You may lose everything, redemption, but you uh, can't lose Christ. You may gain everything in the world, but see, here, nothing is of greater value than what you have already gained in knowing Christ Jesus. See, nothing compares to Him. You're His for eternity, and He has given you everything that you need for now and for eternity. We, we are His. He has made us His own. He took possession of us, freed us from our enslavement to sin, and became our Lord and our Master. Thus, no matter what happens in our life, through the ups and through the downs, we can be confident about this very thing, that if God has led you to it, He will lead you through it. He will give you the strength to walk through it if He's led you to it, both through the ups and the downs. God will do it. God will give you the strength that you need to follow Him and to be a gospel person. And so what do we do here? We're to do all things. We're to do all things. And what does that include? It includes the downs of life, right? As we seek to be content in Christ, as we are living through His unlimited strength, we do all things, which includes the downs of life. See, you can make it through another day if you feel alone. But you're not alone. You can take the next step in a difficult marriage. You can have the conversation that you're dreading. 
You can make the financial cuts necessary to stay in budget. You can do whatever the downs, the, even the hardest things in your life. He will lead you through it. He's given you his word for instruction. He's given you his people for company and biblical examples to follow. And the best part, church, don't miss this, the best part, he's given us himself, which gives us the strength that we need. It makes us durable through all things. It's a strength that keeps us content in Christ, even through the lowest of lows. But the opposite side is equally true. It also includes the ups of life. See, you can meaningfully invest in the abundance of relationships that you have. Some of you are like, I have, I have too many friends. It's not that I feel alone. I just I don't have enough time in my day to invest in the, in the people that God has put in my life. Well, you can meaningfully invest. God will give you the margin that you need to invest and to love these people well. You can enjoy the sweetness of, of marriage in this season. You don't have to feel bad about it. You don't have to worry that, well, just waiting for the shoe to drop. You can enjoy the sweetness of marriage. You can savor the encouragement of that conversation. You you can savor and and relish in, in the sweet fellowship that comes from walking with Christ with people. You can steward your finances and and relish the delight of generosity through the seasons of abundance, through the ups of life. Because guess what? God will lead you through it. He he will lead you through it. He's given you his word for instruction. He's given his people for company and and he's given you examples to follow. And the best part, guess what? He's given us himself, which gives us strength, a strength that makes us durable, a strength that keeps us content. And see, this fortitude, this, this strength is not found in ourselves. I'm not strong. We're not strong. It is Christ who is strong. See, if someone asks you this question, how did you make it through the last year, this, this pandemic? How did you make it through 2020? Let your answer be Philippians 4.13. I did it in Christ who strengthened me. A self-help book didn't do it. A new diet didn't do it. Being rich didn't do it. Even the stimulus check you just got didn't do it. Christ did it. Christ did it. We are alive and thriving today because Christ is alive. Your faith has become more durable because Christ is faithful. Redemption remains and is flourishing. It grows now. Why? Because there's still folks who need to hear of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so church, we do all things, all things content, satisfied, and therefore strengthened in Christ. Would you join me? I think we need to pray and ask God's help in this. Well, God in heaven, uh, what, a, what a timely message. What a helpful passage. What a really convicting passage even, Lord. I know in my own heart, as I, as I see these verses yet again, even though I've studied them for weeks now, God, I'm convicted again of my own discontentment. Convicted again of my own dissatisfaction and who you are and the means that you've given us for satisfaction. Forgive me, forgive us. So we bring these prayers of confession to you. Forgive us. We're seeking to be lone wolves, trying to do things on our own. Forgive us, God, for being so forgetful and so fickle. Forgive us, 
God. We're trying to do things in our own strength. So, Lord, even as we bring these things to you, would you do the good work that only you can do in our hearts? And would you do even a greater work now, God, as you expose these things, as you bring these things to light, would you do an even greater work and would you make Christ that much more sweet to us? May the gospel be that much better. That, that's, uh, may we savor what you've done, Jesus, on our behalf. Give us a greater view of that this morning, a greater affection for that. Even as we sing this last song, as we, uh, as we sing out to you, Lord, may you fill us up, teach us what it means to, uh, to follow you and to be content in you in every season. And so help us with that, God. We're about to leave here. We're about to head back into today and we're about to head into the week. And so we need your help. Give us your grace. Keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus. Give us strength now. We pray these things in Christ's name.